This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Very good afternoon to you. How are you today? This hour, a new company in the Kimberley has announced plans to become Australia's only commercial fluorite mine. So you'll learn all about fluorite shortly. Also, WA's avocado industry is keeping a close watch on efforts to stop the spread of an exotic pest native to Southeast Asia. So we'll take a look at that just after news headlines and a look at the weather right around Western Australia. Five past 12 here on the Country Hour on the ABC WA and also on the ABC Listen app and streaming live on the web just for you this afternoon. First up today, the president of WA Farmers Livestock Section can't believe how long it's taking for the regulator to approve an independent Commonwealth vet to inspect the livestock on board a ship that's been anchored off the WA coast since Monday. Jeff Pearson says the exporter's registered vet is on board the vessel and the animals are in good health. But without an independent vet assessment, the ship can't dock and a plan for the livestock can't be approved. The MV Bahija left Australia on January the 5th, but the Department of Agriculture ordered it to return due to escalating tensions in the Middle East. Jeff, what's the latest? Well, still, Belinda, we uh, don't have any answers from the department in regards to what the future of these livestock are. So at any any moment now, we're hoping to get some sort of a decision from the department of which way the uh, the animals will go. Well, either way, it does appear that some of the livestock will have to be offloaded. What sort of numbers are we talking about? Yeah, so it looks under the situation of, of going into a long-haul voyage that we may have to relax some of the, the numbers on the on the ship. So potentially uh, there will be some uh, form of livestock uh, offloaded. Um, there'll be potentially a, a small amount of sheep, um, which will, will go to direct to slaughter, and potentially a small amount of cattle to go as well, which is probably around about that sort of four to 500 head. So four to 500 head of the cattle, and how many sheep? Do you think we don't know yet? We don't know yet. It's, it's it'll be a small number. We'll be in the in in the in the hundreds. I thought. Okay, so the cattle that come off the ship, where would they go? Uh, they'll return to their um, existing RE, was where they were disembarked from originally when they were exported from the from the premises. Sorry, what's the RE? Registered establishment, the quarantine. So I'd go back into quarantine, back to back the property into, that they back came into quarantine, from. Yeah, that's yeah. correct. And what happens to at that point? How long do they stay in quarantine and what's their uh, future? At this stage, they'll go back into quarantine. Uh, we look like, you know, if we can get this, this situation sorted out, there are uh, other cattle ready to be exported out of that quarantine facility um, and these animals will be re- re-quarantined and um, re-protocoled, ready for the uh, next ship. And with the sheep coming off, you said they'd go direct to the processor? Has a Correct. connection Correct. with a processor been established to make that happen? Uh, we have had, had um, preliminary uh, discussions with a couple of the smaller domestic plants and uh, it looks like that they will be able to process them for us. And what is the, the regulator saying to the idea of this plan? Do you get a sense that that's the plan that eventually will get the tick off? Uh, that's what we're sort of um, hoping. The uh, regulator is uh, sort of, uh, we've given them every 
contingency plan we could actually provide for them and they're looking at at all options but at this stage uh, to go into a long-haul voyage it looks like it looks very promising that the department will tick off on on this um, under the circumstances. So the shipment continues its voyage, you know, offloading a few of the the livestock on board, but continues yep. its voyage this time around Africa to the Israeli market. Correct, up through the top and right around the top of Africa. Yeah. And is because of that longer voyage, is that why the numbers need to be reduced off the ship? Yeah, it just makes it, um, yeah, just uh, for a long-haul voyages, obviously stipulations of what you can be loading and your, and your stocking density. So basically it was loaded for a short to mid-haul voyage and now it's gone into a long-haul voyage, so therefore we've got to uh, allow more space. Earlier in the week you were really concerned about any livestock coming off this ship and the biosecurity concerns that that would present Western Australia with. Why are you feeling different about this today and really looking at the option of getting some of these livestock off off the ship? Well, I'm not feeling easy about it. I'm not feeling easy about bringing any livestock back into, into Western Australia and Australia for that matter. But the fact of the matter is you've got a lot more animals on this ship that need to be that need a home. So if it if it if it brings us to a situation where we, we unload a small amount of livestock to get the major livestock to market, well that's going to be the best possible outcome. Has the Israeli market definitely given approval that they're prepared to take this shipment? Absolutely. Business as usual in Israel. Uh, and basically all we need to do is recommit to that um, under, the, under the conditions of recommitting to that uh, market. And um, basically they're in open arms to take the livestock as soon as they can. So how, has the property been confirmed for the cattle to go and spend their time, depending on how many that is, 400 or so? Yep, so that'll be returned to the the existing depot that they originally started their quarantine in. How do the farmers who have, and the farmers and producers who have cattle and sheep on this ship feeling right now? Uh, well, there's a small amount. So there's quite a few multi-vendors in the sheep, but there's only a few vendors in uh, in the, there was one large vendor in the uh, livestock in, in the cattle. So I haven't had conversations with them, but I can assure you that, that the livestock are, are in, in great condition and... Um, and, and comfortable. Are you one of them? Uh, potentially, we had some livestock on there, yeah. Okay. And would you be happy to have some of them come back to your property? Uh, look, it doesn't matter whether they're mine or anybody else's. It's um, it's the fact that they are a consignment that needs to be considered to be a, a group consignment and, and they'll be treated in that way. And how confident are you that biosecurity concerns won't be breached? We won't have a, a major biosecurity issue on our hands here in Western Australia. As I said before, we've got you know a lot of people working on this. Um, never say never, but we're doing everything we can to make sure that there's no threat to to the West Australian shores of of these cattle for a disease incursion. How many people are working on this, trying to get a resolution? I would imagine from Canberra to uh, Perth, or we'd be looking at around 100, 150 people. How critical is this to get this right? It's critical. It's critical for the critical for the future of the live export industry, and it's critical for the producers of Western Australia. This is the country hour, twelve past twelve. Jeff Pearson, the president of the livestock section with WA Farmers, is here and frustrated over the delay in sorting out a plan for the sheep and cattle on board that ship that's been sitting off the WA coast uh, since Monday. Uh, Jeff, what's happening on board the ship today? Um, Business as usual with the ship. There's the the, the uh, stockies are um, inspecting the cattle on a regular basis. The staff are, are cleaning pens as we speak, uh, just making sure that manure pad's good. 
and basically they're fed and watered and, and floating around, cruising in a sea breeze, hopefully, this afternoon. The regulator has just updated the situation on board the ship, saying that the exporter's registered vet is on board the vessel and recording details of the health and welfare of the livestock each day, and this information is being provided to the department. And the department is currently assessing the feasibility of additional independent vet attending the vessel to provide further assistance. So the department, the regulator, hasn't actually put on its own independent Commonwealth vet at this point. That's correct. So we we put the invitation out about uh, when the when the ship uh, docked in Gagewood Roads uh, to someone to come and inspect the livestock immediately, just to give peace of mind and a third party observation. But basically, uh, we haven't seen anyone on the ship as yet. Why is that? Uh, not sure. I'm not sure. There was talk about our health and safety and a few different other issues, but um, we're still encouraging this vet to come. I mean, uh, part of the protocol to to let the ship berth and also let the ship sail needs to have needs to be reinspected under the ASIL conditions anyway. So we need a vet there, sort of pronto, to to make things uh, keep moving smoothly. Well, how frustrating is that? I mean, this has been. It seems like it's been going on for a very long time. I mean, since the the ship left on the 5th of January, the turnaround, it's been sitting out off the coast of WA. Shouldn't that vet already be on board? Uh, you would think so, yes. And look, that's been the, the, the sticking point all the way along, Belinda, that we've, you know, we've, we've engaged with the department on a regular basis. We've had, you know, we, we put that many contingency plans in place to keep them, you know, moving to make a decision. It, it is frustrating that, you know, we, we're sort of 15 days into the return of this this uh, vessel and then we still don't have an answer. That's It's, it's quite... Um, Frustrating. So nothing is really going to change until that independent vet gets on board that ship and yep. takes a look for him or herself and Correct. ticks off. Before it can move, yep. Any idea when that might happen? Uh, we're hoping the next couple of days. So still, you know, it could be the end of the week before any the ship can even be allowed to dock. I would hope to think we'd have someone there by the end of the day, end of the week, yep. Yeah, because uh, yesterday we heard from the State Agriculture Minister saying the ship was offered a chance to dock yesterday, but, you know, logistics sort of got in the way of things. But that doesn't seem to be the case. It's the fact no, that that it, independent vet has not been out yep, to that ship. Yep, you need to do our inspection before we can berth the ship. And before you can get, you know, however many cattle or sheep that need to come oh, off. And then, and then start loading with fodder, yep. How frustrating is this? This is, it just seems <laughs> like it is a top priority uh, yeah. to resolve oh, is, this issue. It has been burning for three weeks, not for three days permanently, um, just to get things moving. Yeah, so it's, um, it is a frustrating situation. Yeah. How much pressure is this putting on the producers who have livestock on board the ship for the exporter as well, who's, you know, right at the centre of these sort of discussions? What have you Absolutely. heard? Absolutely. Everybody's in the same situation. The exporter, the people that are working for the exporter, um, you know, the, the export company itself. Um, you know, there's a, there's a massive financial burden there, which there's no compensation at all uh, as part of that. So that's, that's, that's picked up by the exporter. Uh, and, and everybody along, along the journey, it's, um, you know, it's, it has been frustrating to, to, to not know. I mean, we as a, you know, processor and, and producer sort of, you know, are pretty resilient people and we like to make decisions, you know, quickly and smartly and you know, for the benefit of everybody. But you know, in, when, you, when you're in the hands of the department, it makes it very frustrating. But do, do you feel the department is prioritising this issue? It's the number one issue today? I think they are, but 
it's it's probably it's because this isn't a situation that you know has, has happened before we had a little bit of it in the north but not so much in the south it, it it's probably a little bit out of their reach for you know short term but hopefully we can get them to uh, change you know, the procedures and processes for the you know if, if it was ever to happen again. So just uh, wrapping up then you think that the ship may there's a possibility of it docking this afternoon? There was talk of doing that yep um, but and there is another sh- uh, livestock vessel in in the way but we, we potentially could move that if that was the case but yeah it, look it, it could happen as early as this afternoon but it's more likely to be in the next couple of days. But what's going to change, you know, in the next few hours sort of thing to allow a, a Commonwealth vet to get on board? De- department approval. <laughs> so it's a bit of red tape and signatures and <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. dots to be dotted and things like that. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh-huh. How confident are you it's going to be done by the weekend? This is going to be sorted. Oh, look, I never say never, but, you know, it's uh, hopefully, you know, I have reasonable confidence we're getting closer than what we were a few days ago. Jeff, thank you for the update. Thanks, Belinda. Jeff Pearson is the president of the WA Farmers Livestock Section, 18 past 12. And this update is the latest update from the regulator, uh, the regulator being the Federal Department of Agriculture fisheries and forestry. It says this morning the exporter provided supporting information to the department to support their application to unload some animals in Australia prior to re-exporting the remaining animals on board the vessel. The department is assessing this application as a priority. These are complex decisions that must balance Australian biosecurity, export legislation, animal welfare considerations and the requirements of our international trading partners and the regulator says further information will be published as decisions are reached. 18 past 12. On the text, if you want to be part of this conversation, please do text through on 0448 922604. That's what Ray has done in East Pingley. The actions of the federal government in the return shipment of sheep and cattle to Fremantle reflects the incompetence of the Federal Department of Agriculture. This too from Malcolm in York. This is exactly what the federal government and Murray Watt wants. This ship will turn into a disaster and will push their agenda to ban the live sheep trade. Blind Freddie can see what they're up to, says Malcolm. 0448 922604. Well, in light of the saga unfolding just off the coast of WA, Tasmanian federal independent MP Andrew Wilkie is calling for an immediate ban on live cattle exports, not just the sheep. He says the situation is a wake-up call for the federal government to fast-track its policy to phase out the trade. It's now 26 days since the live export vessel, the Bahaji, uh, left Fremantle bound for Jordan via the Red Sea. That vessel, of course, had to be turned around because of the dangerous conditions in the Red Sea. Uh, The result is that the 15,000 livestock, mostly sheep, are still on the vessel on day 26, now uh, uh, moored just off Fremantle in Western Australia. There are so many layers to this which are alarming. First and foremost is the welfare of those 15,000 sheep and cattle. They've been in the most intolerable conditions uh, for 26 days now. And they're currently sitting on a stationary vessel, which means there's no movement of air through it. It will be unbearably hot, unbearably filthy, 
they will be shockingly fatigued and susceptible to disease. And nothing's being done about it. Uh, the vessel is just resting off Fremantle. As far as we know, no independent vet, vet has been sent out, sent out to check on the livestock. Uh, as far as we know, there's no plan to bring those 15,000 sheep and cattle ashore and into quarantine so they can be cared for and re recover. Um, what we do fear is that plans are afoot to actually um, send the vessel via the Cape of Good Hope, uh, the alternative way around to Israel, which would be another 33 days at sea. Um, this is no way to treat Australian livestock. Uh, in my opinion, those uh, livestock have got to be taken off that vessel as soon as humanly possible, put into quarantine and cared for properly. And I'll tell you what else has got to happen. This has got to be another wake-up call to the current government to fast-track its plan to ban the live export of sheep from Australia to the Middle East. Um, not that we needed another reminder, but this is another reminder. Now, to give credit to the Federal Labor government, they are progressing slowly, a plan to phase out live sheep exports to the Middle East. But we're having consultation after consultation, and there is still not even a date uh, provided by the government for when the ban will come into place. So, you know, I, I, I just call out to the federal government, for a start, find out what clown in the regulator decided it was a good idea to give a permit for the vessel to go via the Red Sea to Jordan in the first place, uh, and to make a decision to get the sheep off the ship, get them into quarantine, get them cared for, and then get out in front of the camera and give us a date for when the live trade ban will be put in place. Because the fact is, the live export trade is inherently cruel. It does not have uh, public support. It takes Australian uh, meat processing jobs. And in fact, the only way to end the cruelty is to end the trade. How important is it to come up with this plan quickly? At the moment, we've got all these sheep and cattle sitting out on a boat in a really, really hot day. Um, you know, while you might have the groups who want different things, uh, they can both seem to agree on the fact there needs to be a plan. Oh, absolutely. And, and, that, and that's one of, the, one of the alarming aspects of this. One of the alarming dimensions of this is that the vessel is sitting off Fremantle and we don't know what the plan is. Um, as far as we know, there is no plan yet. Uh, the regulator and the government are still, uh, you know, gazing into their navel and reflecting on the situation. Is an Australian abattoir really the solution? Um, look, <laughs> frankly, the live export trade has to be banned. Sheep and cattle. Because we know from an abundance of evidence that the live export trade is systemically cruel it doesn't have popular support and it takes Australian jobs. Tasmanian Federal Independent Andrew Wilkie speaking to Lucy Cooper. 24 past 12. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varasgetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Uh, a lot of texts coming through. I'll try and get to as many of them as I can shortly between now and the news at one o'clock. The text is zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. In other news today, a new company in the Kimberley has announced plans to become Australia's only commercial fluorite mine. The relatively niche critical mineral has been used industrially in steel, aluminium and chemical manufacturing for years. And there's increasing demand for it in next generation lithium-ion 
on batteries and solar cells. Grant Wilson is the CEO of Taiwan and says the board has agreed to progress the fluorite project at its Spiwa site, southeast of Kununurra. We've been in a deep uh, period of diligence at the company to assess the resource and a lot of previous work that was done on the resource over many decades, but particularly the previous owners did a study in 2018. So there's a lot of technical work that we've got through over the past month, and we're pleased to be in a position today to confirm that we're pushing ahead with the project. Was it always on your plan to to produce fluoride? Well, fair to say we acquired the Spiwa resource in February of last year, so it's it's under a year. We had a lot of work to get through at Taiwan last year, transforming the company and building out downstream relationships in Vanadium, which was our core focus. Also progressing the mineral processing technology uh, with CSIRO um, and many international negotiations as well in places like Japan. So we knew about it. We'd done superficial work on it through mid-year. But I think it's fair to say that the catalyzing event was the inclusion of fluorine in mid-December by the Australian government on the critical minerals list. What's been the, the change there? Have we only just recognised that we need this product in these EV batteries? Yeah, there's a few features there. There was a change in government, obviously, in Australia, and the Labor government committed um, to go through a, a long process with the industry. Um, some parts of industry are disappointed that, that other minerals didn't make that list, um, specifically nickel, for example. And then behind the scenes, there would have been a lot of pull from offshore, particularly from the US, and it's notable that fluorine is already on the critical mineral lists in Europe, in Japan and in the US. So there's probably a normalisation aspect there. But I think probably in Australia, it was more the case that this industry had never taken shape before. So it was more an omission and then I think a recognition that it's actually got this vital role to play. So at the moment, what does the market for fluorite look like? Just thinking that at the moment the lithium lithium market is in the doldrums as well as the nickel market as you touched on earlier of course nickel not on that critical mineral list but what's it doing for fluorite yeah so it's quite idiosyncratic a lot of the minerals you just mentioned have reached cycle lows and you've seen that epic volatility in lithium prices rare earth prices vanadium even and a lot of that's china's coming to the market and then just the broad cycle with global interest rates and what we've seen in fluoride is just totally different. There is a strong supply demand imbalance, which is forecast to emerge, particularly from about 2025 in the acid grade uh, fluspar market, which is the, the material that's going into these next generation EV batteries. And China, unlike rare earths, for example, um, is deficient in reserves. If they continue to consume fluspar at the rate that they are, they will run out in about 10 years which is remarkable. And so it's that susceptibility, um, which I think is driving the along with these new use cases. So over the past five years, since the scoping study was done by the previous owners, prices are up significantly and we made uh, historical highs. So it, we're actually at all-time highs and the outlook is, is very, very positive. When's production going to start for you at Taiwan? Yes, that's a question I'll get a lot. <laughs> so we are still full steam ahead on our vanadium project. It's incredible that these two resources exist independently. And from the edge of one to the other is, is 1.5 kilometres. I mean, Spiwa is an incredible endowment for the country. So we're expecting to um, still deliver our pre-feasibility study for the vanadium project, which is a much more complicated and larger project in the third quarter. 
this project because we're building on a lot of work that's already been done and because it is a much simpler and smaller project um, we're looking to deliver the pfs ahead of that now um, the end of q2 at that point um, having delivered both pfs's ahead of our agm the board will make an assessment as to which goes first we certainly can't do both at the same time now of course we also have to work through all of the facilitation um, as we have been on the environmental improvements around spiwa and we're working very closely with traditional owners and we also have a public agreement now with Kimberley Land Council. So that portfolio with First Nations is, of course, uh, foremost important over the next couple of years. CEO of Taiwan, Grant Wilson, speaking to Alice Marshall. Neil Van Druen is the acting CEO of the Association of Mining and Exploration Companies. And he says when he saw fluorite had been added to the Australian Critical Minerals List in late 2023, he was unaware of its significance. Well, I've got to be honest, back in December, Minister King updated the Critical Minerals List and AMEC was expecting nickel and probably copper to be included to the critical minerals list, but they included fluorite and arsenic. And to be completely honest, I had to dig into my periodic table to find it. But fluorite is definitely a mineral, and it's an industrial mineral, and there is a global market for it. Do you have any idea why it was added to this list? Has it become clear in the month and a bit since why yeah. it's added? So we called up, obviously we had a conversation with the Minister's office and also Geoscience Australia. It's critical in the sense that it's desperately in short supply and Australia doesn't have, to my understanding, any fluorite mines at the moment. That's something that Tyvan would like to change in its Spiwa project. Just Isn't near, that exciting? Just like, near Kununurra, of all places. Yes. yes, they've got an exciting geological deposit and my understanding is that they're doing further work to see what can be done. Is it a market, do you think, that mines, critical minerals mines will will be sort of checking to see if they've got any good deposits under them? Yeah, I think so. The As I said, in December, Minister King brought out critical minerals list with, she updated the minerals list and included a, a bunch of minerals, including fluorite, tellurium, arsenic, and a couple of others, and I know that a lot of companies went back to their um, their tenements and ran the numbers because there's an obvi- obvious advantage to mining a critical mineral in Australia. And, yeah, it's exciting to see what Taiwan have found. So I, I'm looking – like, I think it's entirely possible and – Look forward to seeing what's going to happen next. Acting CEO of the Association of Mining and Exploration Companies, Neil Van Druen, with Alice Marshall. 28 to 1. Tony Carr in the studio with the headlines. Good afternoon, Belinda. The Federal Education Minister, Jason Clare, says a signed agreement with the WA Government to boost public school funding will ensure more students graduate. WA will be the first state in the country to receive nearly $800 million of Commonwealth funding over the next four years. The deal is part of the Federal Government's agreement to reach the schooling resource standard, which estimates the amount of money required to meet students' needs. Some of the animals on board, a live export ship anchored off the W. 
WA coast will be offloaded while the rest will be shipped back to the Middle East under a plan put forward by the exporter. The MV Bahija has been sitting off Fremantle since Monday after it was ordered to return to Australia while en route to the Middle East due to the deteriorating security situation in the region. And the owner of the Cosmos nickel mine in WA's northern goldfields says it's unclear how many jobs will be affected when it closes mid-year. Perth-based miner IGO has announced it's placing the operation on care and maintenance in May. It's the latest in a string of mine closures, which has cost hundreds of jobs across WA's once booming nickel industry. Belinda, I'll be back with some more news at one o'clock. Thank you, Tony. It is 27 to one. On the text, in response to the conversation we've been having this hour, talking about the latest on the live export ship that still remains anchored just off the coast of WA. The regulator, the Federal Department of Agriculture, yet to uh, tick off on a plan for those sheep and cattle on board, but it does look like uh, very close to confirming a plan to get some of the cattle, some of the sheep off the ship and then send the ship on its way around Africa to the market in Israel. But that hasn't been ticked off yet. And an independent vet from the Commonwealth vet has not been on board that ship yet. So it's really holding up proceedings. On the text, commendations to those involved with the persistent efforts to get the ship back to port and docked despite a complete lack of government communication, leadership and action, a red tape nightmare, surely a Commonwealth initiative to support and end to the live trade. This from Macca, very disappointing as a sheep farmer to hear about the lack of preparedness that is evident in the situation with the ship being returned. Given all the controversy and attention, you would think there would be some forethought, absolute joke and not serving anyone's interest. Elaine says, what an absolute debacle, these poor sheep. We are farmers and are disgusted at the whole situation. Poor planning and management of what could have been an avoidable situation. Shame, shame, shame on those calling the shots. This too, frustrating is not the right word. Incompetence at its highest level is more like the truth. It absolutely beggars belief how long governments take to do anything constructive. Uh, the texts keep coming in. There is not a lot of love, you could say, for Tasmanian independent Andrew Wilkie, who you heard from earlier and, yes, not a lot of love on the text for Andrew Wilkie, who is now, in light of the saga unfolding off the WA coast, calling for an immediate ban on not only sheep exports, but cattle exports. The text is 0448 922 We'll head to the Bureau of Meteorology next. Twenty-five to one here on the Country Hour. It's off to Katanning just before one with the results of the yarding and the prices at the sheep market today. And also, we'll just pop over to Queensland. Uh, a few pastoralists dealing with some floodwaters there after all of the rain. Let's head off to the local Bureau of Meteorology now. And Angeline Prasad is with you this afternoon. And shall we start in the Southwest Land Division today? Because pretty hot conditions across most parts. 
Good afternoon, Belinda. Yes, we have got a severe heat wave uh, gripping the southwest of WA. In fact, we've got uh, very hot temperatures across much of WA today, just not in the southwest. And it is unusually hot. Uh, today we're seeing temperatures about 10 to 12 degrees above average for this time of the year. So temperatures uh, getting into the high 30s, into the low 40s across much of the southwest land division, except the far south coast, um, where temperatures are a bit, a bit more milder today. And uh, tomorrow isn't looking any better. In fact, tomorrow might be worse. We might see temperatures hotter than today. Um, so uh, temperatures tomorrow is likely to be about 10 to 16 degrees above average. So we might see some records being broken to, to my daytime temperatures. And because we're seeing these um, consecutive days of uh, very unusually, uh, very uh, well, unusually hot temperatures for this time of the year, uh, especially tonight we're not going to see those uh, cooler temperatures uh, that you usually you know experience overnight uh, when we see those rather warm summer days so yes it's going to be quite oppressive tonight so quite a quite a scorcher and it's a fairly prolonged heat wave we really don't see temperatures start to ease um on the southwest west coast on friday and we don't see that cooler change come through on saturday so a few days of um uh, scorching temperatures um and uh, there might be a bit of respite on the way tomorrow with the sea breeze coming in a little bit earlier than today, but that won't stop the heating from happening on that west coast. So the west coast sea breeze might come in earlier, but yeah, the temperatures will continue to build maybe a degree or two higher than today. Yes, just very hot temperatures. That west coast trough is uh, rather slow moving. It's not going to move much. Um, the only, I think... Um, I guess uh, silver lining is it's it's a dry trough. It's a fairly stable, static weather conditions, so we're not expecting any dry lightning with this West Coast trough. So very dry, very hot. Uh, that will lead to um, elevated fire dangers, and there is elevated bushfire risk. Um, the, as I mentioned, the silver lining is uh, we're not expecting dry lightning uh, with this West Coast trough. And can we see any further ahead, uh, Ange, for the Southwest Land Division? Can you take us into the weekend and beyond? Yes, so we do see temperatures uh, fall off quite rapidly on the weekend. So we'll see uh, the western and southern parts of the Southwest Land Division. Temperatures drop about 2 to 6 degrees on Saturday. And across much of uh, uh, the Southwest Land Division uh, and also the southern Gascoigne, we might see temperatures, uh, uh, quite cool temperatures. So Sunday, Saturday, Sunday into Monday, um, we'll see much cooler temperatures on the way as a new ridge uh, moves in as the West Coast troughs uh, moves inland and the next uh, bout of uh, warmer temperatures is going to start on the west coast on Tuesday. So it might be a bit of a rinse and repeat uh, second half of next year. We'll see those warmer temperatures return with the next west coast trough. All right, let's move into northern and eastern parts. Some hot conditions too. Yes, so uh, Hot conditions across the northern and eastern parts of the state as well. Uh, now, we have seen thunderstorm activity across the northern and western parts of uh, the Kimberley and also uh, through the Pilbara. The thunderstorms in the Pilbara are a little bit on the drier side, um, but the Kimberley has been getting some rainfall. Today, the thunderstorms are expected to be a little bit more isolated and more likely to be gusty. So there is a bit of a risk for damaging wind gusts, especially across western Kimberley. And 
the pattern is pretty static in the north as well. Um, showers and uh, gusty thunderstorms will continue into next week across the northern and western parts of the Kimberley and the western parts of the Pil Pilbara, drier through the uh, Pilbara. So there is that risk of uh, um, elevated uh, uh, sort of bushfire risk through through western Pilbara simply because the thunderstorms will be drier. Um, but yeah, those uh, uh, hot conditions will continue across the north as well so it's it's going to be uh, warm to hot right throughout the state little bit of respite especially across northern and western kimberley with those um diurnally driven showers and thunderstorms and then the warnings this afternoon um we have got um the heat wave warning out uh for multiple districts so uh, extreme heat wave warning uh, for the kimberley severe heat wave warning for the pilbara gascoigne uh, north interior, much of the southwest land division uh, there. And apart from that, currently we have got a fire weather warning for uh, Brockman and Blackwood fire weather districts. So those two districts are in the southwest of the southwest land division. Um, we still have a minor flood warning for the Fitzroy River. So um, expecting uh, uh, minor floods uh, closer to Wilaya. Um, so it's expected to peak tomorrow. So that's in the lower reaches of the Fitzroy River system. And we should w see water gra gradually ease off at Wilaya beyond uh, beyond Thursday. And uh, uh, no warnings for our coastal waters today. Oh, okay. Thank you, Ange. I appreciate that. It is 19 to 1. ABC Radio, fire ban information. And as Ange was just mentioning, due to the risk of fires, a total fire ban has been issued for today, Wednesday, January 31st. It affects the following local government areas in the southwest region, that is Collie, Dardanup, Harvey and Waruna. And then in the lower southwest region, it is Boyup Brook, Bridgetown, Greenbushes and Donnybrook bailing up. The fire ban is in place all day, so you can't light, maintain or use a fire in the open air or carry out any activity that could start a fire, including lighting fires for cooking or camping or hot works, such as grinding, welding and gas cutting. Remember, it is your responsibility to check with your local shire if there's also a harvest and vehicle movement ban imposed. If so, that means you can't use off-road vehicles even for agriculture or industry. There's more about what you can and can't do during a total fire ban and also a map of the areas on the Emergency WA website. That's emergency.wa.gov.au. Just repeating, there's a total fire ban today for the southwest and lower southwest regions. Taking a look at the rainfall figures now, this is for the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning. Uh, nothing to report in the Southwest Land Division, but there is a little bit in northern and eastern forecast districts, checking five mils and over. In the Kimberley, Drysdale River Station 53, Alquestro 11, Allen Bray had 46 millimetres, Emma Gorge 7, Gibb River 12, Kachana 42, Kingston Rest 23, Kununurra Checkpoint 6, Lake Argyle Resort 19, Theta 12 and Wyndham Aero had 17. 17 to 1 here on the Country Hour. I'll go through a couple more texts now. This is on the ship that's just off the coast of WA and we've been talking about that getting the very latest. There is no plan for the livestock on board that ship at the moment, but it looks likely that some will be offloaded and then the ship will continue around Africa to the market in Israel. 
In response to that, Will in Waluna says this live export situation is an absolute joke and shows how incompetent the Commonwealth and state governments are. This has nothing to do with live export. It just shows how hopeless government is. Uh, BJ says, because Andrew Wilkie, the independent for Tasmania, was on earlier in the hour and he's saying this situation is really a wake-up call for the government to get moving on its policy to not only phase out live sheep exports, but according to Andrew Wilkie, also stop cattle exports. So in response to that, BJ says he really doesn't have a clue making baseless claims. No airflow. The ship has ventilation fans for the livestock. It's a requirement that when animals are loaded on vessels with enclosed decks, the ventilation system must be run continuously from commencement of loading. That's in ASIL. The final review on page 44 says BJ, perhaps he should familiarise himself with the protocols before opening his pie hole. You got away with words there, BJ. Uh, And this from Peter, let's all ban money, all money leaving Western Australia to support Tasmania. And this too from Rex, someone should tell that MP and a few reporters that sitting on a ship off Fremantle is likely the coolest spot in the state at the moment. The text is zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. It is a quarter to one. Well, floodwaters are making their way down the river systems in northwest Queensland after more than 500 millimetres fell across the region this week. It's all a result of ex-tropical cyclone Kiralee, which has been sitting over the McKinlay Shire and refusing to do what was expected of it, which was, of course, to keep moving west. It's resulted in floodwaters, the peak of which arrived at David Batt's place Newcan Station between Kainuna and Winton. And David is expecting more water to come through in the next few days. Oh, well, I haven't been down this morning, but it was starting to drop out about, oh, it was about four o'clock yesterday afternoon. It already started to drop, which I was surprised about, but I'm guessing that's just the first lead of it and there'll be a, there'll be a fresh coming you know, last night or today because the Middleton water wouldn't have got here yet, which is you know over 100k away. So it's pretty fast moving from what you can tell? Yes. Yeah, oh, it's pretty, no, it's actually quite slow, the Diamond Tanny. You, you can swim across it in full flood. It's it's not too bad. That's why you never lose too many stock in it if they're you know, in good condition. Hmm. But it'll run for a fair while this time. A lot of rain up there, of course, as you know. How far did it spread out? You said this is sort of the first the first lot of water. How far did it spread out? Oh, well, it's under my mailbox, which is about two and a half. 3k from the first channel of the of the river so it's it's got a pretty big spread on okay and and you said there that you don't generally lose too many stock when it does flood but have you moved any just in case because there is so much water coming down yes 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 myself and a neighbor we had a helicopter came yesterday no day before and shifted everything out up onto the onto the there's a main road runs past here so they're all sitting up there so no i think we'll, we'll be pretty right we won't have any issues, I think. You said yesterday when we were chatting that it looks like it's going to be, you know, a pretty good flood. So what are you sort of anticipating from what you're seeing already just as this first lot of water arrives? Uh, I can't imagine getting much higher, actually, but it, it could. Because, you know, some of those places at 600 mil up there over all compressed into 24 hours. So it, it could get bigger, but I don't think it'll be much bigger than what it is now. Because there's nothing downstream much more, so it'll it'll drain out pretty quick, what it usually does in that, that situation. So it'll it'll be okay, yes.
it's it's won't be too bad a flood. All the livestock should be right, I think. They've got a bit something to eat. They're not standing there hungry waiting for grass and we'll have a bit of fencing, but that's, that's part and parcel of floods, isn't it? Yeah. But yeah. apart from that, it'll uh, I'm sure it'll probably the only thing that might be a bit of an issue, it, it'll probably keep flooding for a few days and Mitchell grass doesn't like being in the water for too long. It'll kill a lot of it. That'll be probably our only downside of it all, but, but hopefully it'll drain out quick enough so it doesn't kill everything. Winton Grazier, David Batts, speaking to Madeleine McCosker, 12 to 1. WA's avocado industry is keeping a close watch on efforts to stop the spread of an exotic pest native to Southeast Asia. The tiny beetle, Polyphagus shot hole borer, was first detected in Fremantle in 2021 and is having a big impact on Perth's urban tree canopy. WA Agriculture Minister Jackie Jarvis says the only way to protect WA's vulnerable agricultural crops and iconic parks is to remove the affected trees. This is a national response to try and eliminate this pest. This pest is causing havoc in places like California and Argentina and and South Africa where it costs millions of dollars a year and, and hundreds of trees die a year. Once the trees are infected with this tiny borer, it actually farms a fungus that causes dieback. So trees that are infected will die anyway, but if we can actually chop them down early and chip them up, we actually have the opportunity to kill the borer in its tracks. A number of infested trees across Perth will need to be pruned or removed by arborists including at Hyde Park, Lake Claremont, Kings Park and Perth Zoo. There's also a quarantine area in place covering most of the Perth metropolitan area. Theodore Evans is Associate Professor of Applied Entomology at the University of Western Australia. He says the beetle also attacks some agricultural crops, in particular avocados. So obviously we grow a lot of avocados Avocados in Australia don't have a lot of pests because avocados are native to Central America. 90% of insect pests are specialists Mm. in their food. So happily, we haven't imported the main pests of avocado from Central America in Australia. So our trees are relatively pest-free, which is good for farmers because it means they don't need to spend money on controlling them. And better for us because that means we get fewer chemicals sprayed on the avocados and so forth. There's an issue, particularly in Israel. So Israel's had a really hard time managing polyphagous post-shot hole in avocado plantations because of strict. most of their avocado fruit is sold into Europe and Europe's got some very strict rules about what sorts of chemicals can be used to control various pests. And so the beetles spread quite a lot and had quite a big impact on uh, trees in avocado plantations in Israel. The damage in Hawaii and California is lower because they don't worry about those sorts of strict chemical controls. And so they are working on better ways to try to get uh, insecticidal chemicals, uh, use them in ways that might provide better control. UWA Associate Professor Theodore Evans. Brad Rogers is the WA Director of Avocados Australia. He's pleased with the government's response to control the pest and try and keep it out of WA's avocado orchards. 
As an industry, we're always worried about pests and concerns. Uh, we are working closely with DPIRD. Um, we've been involved with them from the start. So we, we are worried, but because of the quarantined suburbs that you mentioned, we're quite hopeful that that will help us greatly. What about for growers in that quarantined area? How are they feeling? There's a few growers north of Perth that are in that area and they would just be maintaining their, their normal good orchard hygiene and management. So watching out for the signs of this particular pest and that information uh, has been available to them for quite some time now. So they are surveilling for that. What are the signs of the shot hole borer? Are you aware of that? Basically, um, like any borer, so they will bore a hole uh, into a tree uh, or a plant. In this case, they're tree borers. Um, they're about the size of a pinhead, not a pinhead, a penhead. So you could put a good old-fashioned pen into it. Um, so you'll be able to see them and there'll be lots of holes. Uh, and it's not the borer that actually does um, the damage. It's the fungus that it forms as it's going in or as it's boring in and it leaves behind when it moves on. And it's the fungus that actually uh, starts the damage. Do you know the overall damage that they could create, Brad? could be uh, a devastating impact, of course, to an orchard or to an area. And that has happened in the world. This particular borer has been around. We've got some history that we're using to our advantage from a knowledge point of view. So it is like any other pests in farming. It is a, a concern, but we are doing our best. We, we can't do any more than we are doing right now. WA Director of Avocados Australia, Brad Rogers with Kate Forrester. Seven minutes to one. This is the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Heading off to the Catanning Sheep Market shortly just before the news at one, going through the yardings and the prices today with Tracy Kilner. First up, though, Peak Body Wool Producers Australia has withdrawn its support for the National Electronic Identification Scheme for Sheep and Goats. In September 2022, the country's agriculture ministers agreed on making electronic ear tags mandatory for all sheep and goats born from January 1, 2025. And this, of course, follows Victoria's example, making the tags mandatory from 2017. But individual states and territories are responsible for the design, the rollout and the funding of the scheme. Wool Producers Australia President Steve Harrison says there are three key points of concern with the scheme. One's the harmonisation of the states. Uh, the second one is the database. And the third one is the continued funding, equitable funding of the database and, of course, for e-tags. Okay, so on that first point, you have concerns about harmonisation. Is that because even though it is uh, a national scheme, each state is essentially running its own race? Yes, through best efforts to get them all into one room and have um, harmonisation. We don't feel that this has been achieved as, as well as it could be as yet. And one of the issues is um, there'll be a lot of du double tagging of uh, sheep in other states, which already have a mob-based tag in their ear. And after two years, three years, um, they may require an EID in their ear to on sell them. So double tagging is a huge concern um, in some states. So for most states, they'll start introducing the scheme in 2025 and then two years later, all sheep and lambs will need to be tagged. So is that what you mean there, that that, that two-year window means that there will be yes. a double up? 
Yes, exactly it. Um, you know, in, in Victoria back in the day, you know, we had a five five year phase in that worked well. And yeah, the other states need to, um, I would suggest, you know, look into that because otherwise, yeah, wool growers or any sheep grower, you know, that has to double tag sheep with an added cost of an AID, you know, that won't go over well. And we just think, you know, we're supporting our growers in uh, withdrawing our support at this until this is properly looked at. And a five-year window, that would cover the, almost cover the lifespan of most sheep? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. It's almost got them, you know, the majority of them done as in Victoria. But yeah, it's certainly a lot better than trying to retag after two years. Five years just gives everyone a better opportunity to phase in. Your other concern was, as you said, about you want equitable funding for the scheme. Uh, as things stand, will will funding vary between states and farmers across borders may be paying more or less money to, to be part of the scheme, uh, depending on what state they're in? Yeah, so different states have um, announced different funding models at the moment. And, you know, Victoria, we have the comp funds that d- does assist with the um, funding of our um, tags here in Victoria. But, you know, unfortunately, unless there's continued funding for the tags and the database um, that is consistent, all of a sudden, you know, some producers in different states will be um, doing a lot more heavy lifting than other states, which, again, isn't equitable and it's not harmonised. What's the, the most that that producers would be willing to pay for for these tags? Uh, look, I think it needs to be um, well under a dollar personally, um, well under a dollar. But, you know, some states are paying in excess of $2 at the moment. So to get that buy-in for biosecurity, I think we do need um, tags well under a dollar personally, yes. What do they cost in Victoria at the moment? Um, 83 cents has been one quote, but, yeah, I think um, the last lot I got was a dollar, but, yeah, 83 cents. Wool Producers Australia making this decision and this announcement to withdraw its support for the scheme, what what effect is that going to have on, on the scheme's rollout? Yeah, look, we're only one voice of um, 10 around the table, but um, we just feel we're better off to um, uh, withdraw our support now, let the other people around the table t- take notice of what we're, why we've done it. Um, otherwise, you know, down the track two or three years, these problems um, will arise. Um, so we certainly want, you know, this to be sorted out now rather than two, three years back when, you know, it's, it's the horse is folded as such. And to be clear, Steve, you are supportive of a national EID scheme. You're just not supportive of the way it's being rolled and planned out at the moment? That's exactly right, Angus, yes. Wool Producers Australia President Steve Harrison speaking with Angus Furley. It's a minute and a half away from the news at one. Let's head off to Katanning now, where 6,768 sheep and lambs were penned for sale at the Katanning market today. That is down 1,787 from last week's numbers. Tracy Kilner, how was the yarding today? The lamb yarding was dominated by stores, with feeder buyers bidding on these as well as the heavier weights. Processors showed less demand than last week, with lamb pricing firm to down. Very plain pens once again sold to minimal values with no interest from buyers. Mutton gained with demand from processors. Um, the best weathers sold to $66 and news reached $40 a head. The lightweight lambs under 16 kilos carcass weight sold to $42. Weights under 18 kilos carcass weight eased selling to 85. Trade weights were down returning 70 to 107. And heavyweights lambs made from 114 to $128 a head. Store use sold from $1 to $22, medium weight sold $30, heavy weights over 30 kilos carcass weight 
returned from $29 to $40 a head. A large run of heavyweight weathers made from $35 to $66 with a full fleece. Mature rams sold from $5 to $30. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Tracy, thank you so much. News time, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.